Welcome to Activism Meet Impact, a production of Novel Hand. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Maria Valdez. She's a public health professional and the co-host of the What's Up Public Health podcast. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Maria with you. We talk a little bit about what public health is, social determinants of health, and what you need to know about public health right now. Here's our conversation. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey within public health, but first just tell us who you are, where you're located, and what you focus on within public health. So my name is Maria Valdez. I um, live in Arizona. I've lived in Arizona most of my life and went to U of A, the University of Arizona. That's where I got both my bachelor's and my master's degree. Um, My bachelor's in family studies and human development, and my master's is in public health practice. And a lot of what I do or my focus in public health, I guess you can say, is on the delivery of care and the social determinants of health. Um, I guess you can say that sort of, um, if we were to compare it to to other fields, I'm the, the internist or the PCP. I'm the one that does, I focus on all the general topics of public health, especially the ones regarding delivery of care and the healthcare system and all of that. Alongside that, I'm also a journalist. I used to write for Huffington Post um, not too long ago, about two years ago. And then I switched over to Medium where it was a little bit different, but that's somewhat what I do um, and who I am. Great. Well, we're excited to have you. I think public health has been a lot more on people's minds over the past year, and that might be an understatement, but I think a lot of people didn't really understand what public health is maybe before COVID. So tell us what is public health? What is sort of a layman's definition of the field of public health? So I guess if you want to give like a sentence phrase for for what is public health is public health is population health. Mm. So anything that affects the people's health at a population scale is what public health is. So that's obviously a very, very broad statement. Um, So public health focuses on the social determinants of health. So everything, all the outside factors of health, like food insecurity, um, insurance, but it also focuses on environmental health, climate change, all those other factors that maybe one does not think like, oh, that is public health, but it is because it's population health. And I think that sort of is what differs it from medicine is that medicine focuses on individual health. So medicine is just the physician with that person focuses on that person and, and treats that person. Myself, for example, I focus on the system and what can we do better to fix the system. And so obviously, for example, if you fix how a certain community is receiving care by creating a program, where people who have no insurance or have low income can get insurance or can get free care. Obviously you're helping the population as a whole, not one person. So that's sort of the big differing between medicine and public health. Now, another thing I think people forget, like mentioned, is that public health is not just related directly to medicine or medical care. Public health is also environmental health care. It's also disparities in education, systemic racism, in the system and just the system of both the education, government, political systems, and so on. So it's, it's, it's a lot. I always tell people, whatever affects the population's health, 
whether it's physically, emotionally, or mentally, public health is in there somehow. Okay, that makes sense. Seems seems important. Seems like something that we should we should know about and understand. So I know that you consider medicine. Tell me a little bit about how you decided to go into public health and why. So I actually, it's a very weird journey, I guess, for me, because it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily straightforward. I feel a lot of times as we're young, we really think that path is like sort of straightforward. And for me, my, I initially started out as wanting to be a physician. So I, a little bit more background of myself, I guess, is that I, I have a sister with autism and epilepsy and I have parents who only speak Spanish. So I became the translator at a mere 10 years of age because before, well, my sister was diagnosed in 2006. So before Obamacare, um, you didn't need to have a translator there. It was just sort of like, I hope the patient understands if they don't, well, they'll, we'll fix it eventually sort of a thing. And so I'd go as a translator because I've been bilingual for a majority of my life. And that's where I sort of started noticing that there was inequities for example, that a physician would give someone else a treatment but not offer it to us because they sort of just assume like, oh, well, they, they, they don't know English, so they may not understand this type of procedure or the post-op or all of this. Or then after that, another thing I noticed is simply getting access to care was hard for us. My sister, when she was 13, needed a neurologist, an epileptiologist because of her epilepsy. And we hadn't, I lived in Yuma, Arizona. We didn't have that specialty there. So we had to drive to Phoenix or to Tucson two, three times a week. So that's, I think, where I started noting, noticing those inequities. And in my head, I was always surrounded by physicians. So in my head, I sort of thought, well, you know what? Physician is the route to go. I want to be a doctor, a medical doctor. And that's sort of how I went. I did. I did my MCAT it sucked. I did it twice. And being a first generation student, I think created additional barriers for me. So I was originally born in Mexico and came over here and got naturalized. So I'm a first generation in regards to going to school. And I'm one of the first also in my whole family as a, actually I'm the first female in my whole family, both sides to ever get a master's degree. So it it comes with a lot of things you don't know, a lot of IDKs, I guess I can say. And I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't know what classes to take. I didn't know how to study. That was the biggest one for me as I really didn't know how to study. There's definitely an art to studying. And my advisors weren't the most helpful in the world. They sort of, I think, unfortunately, had a little bit of implicit bias, as you can say, in their minds. And some of them would tell me, well, why don't you switch your career? Maybe you should do something else. Have you thought of changing schools? And it created additional barriers. And eventually, though, I did it. Eventually, I got into a school that had a post back that was linked to their med school, and I felt ready and I felt set. But by then, I had already done my bachelor's and my master's in public health. And the only reason I did a master's was because everybody told me that I needed to increase my science GPA. So they told me to get a master's. And when I asked, they recommended this degree. And so I did it, but lo and behold, to my surprise, that GPA, while I got a 3.9 in my master's, did not contribute to my science GPA. Yeah. So that for me on second year, my second year, my MPH was sort of a slap in the face because I was like, well, fine. I just 
I just did a yeah. degree that I'm not sure I'll ever use right in, in right. the aspect of career wise but as time moved on and I got then after that I got into the the linked med school program I realized I hated it I finished actually the first quarter I did pretty well and I was really involved in the school I was on their diversities task force but I was unhappy I just was probably the most unhappiest I've ever been wake up at five start I felt like a robot start studying at 5 30 get my husband's thing ready at nine start studying again at 10 and that was just me for the eight ten weeks and during break we actually received an email that two students have committed suicide because unfortunately medicine is a very is one of the careers that has the highest suicide rate and that's no surprise because of the pressure and because again going back to sort of public health the systemic inequities you see in in that career and I sort of took those two weeks of breaks to sort of really think if being a physician was really going to help me in my long-term goals And if I was really going to be happy and want to even practice after six years of schooling left and after four to six years of residency. And evidently for me, that was a no. I I just, it wasn't, I knew that I was going to be more burned out than ever. And either I was going to be another student on those emails, also saying, please be careful with your mental health and also study and take exams and do your homework. Um, or I was simply just going to quit as soon as I got out of residency. And when I focused really my goals on what I wanted to do in life, I mean, I want to tackle the the healthcare system. I want to help minority families how to get better care. And I realized that while having a, a medical degree could definitely help me, it wasn't my end goal. And that that degree probably was not going to help me as much as a PhD in health promotions yeah. or even a DRPH. So after that, I left school and now I'm, I'm working in a public health field in a company that, that is public health driven. And I'm, my goal is to apply to a PhD in, in public health, in a public health arena. And I think that definitely is going to help my goals to tackle, yeah. tackle my goals better. And I don't think many people, you don't hear a lot of other fields in healthcare be mentioned, like pharmacy right now, which uh, at field, for example, during the pandemic is huge. I mean, we need vaccinators, yeah. pharmacists and public health, you don't really hear it mentioned. So I think a lot of people, especially first generations, when they want to go into a medical field, the first thing that pops in their head is a physician. Right. Because that's what they've heard everywhere. Because that's what your family tells you. Like, wow, imagine if you were a doctor. Oh my goodness. But then once you start exploring, I think that's when one really needs to be, okay, do I really, is this really going to sort of evaluate one's goals? And that's for me, Uh, My MPH actually now is ended up being my whole career and my whole life, which is very ironic, but it's definitely what I loved. And I knew it during my MPH that I really liked it, but I was really set on, I want to be a doctor, but Mm -hmm. here I am. And I'm more than happy with my decision, to be honest. So it is, it is what it is. And I'm happy in the field I'm studying, especially during a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I think we can realize just in culture, how there's an emphasis on doctors, but not on those other healthcare professionals and the system as a whole. And I think maybe that's representative of like work that needs to be done just, you know, at a national level, or just like that sort of how you talked about that population level to have a better understanding of what health is and health isn't just doctors. It's also, you know, that community care and preventative care and and things like that too. 
Definitely. And more, I think when you really dive into like the, the minority communities, we're seeing, I mean, simply right now with the vaccine rollout, we're seeing that it is not just enough to have a pod or as they call it in Arizona, a pod of vaccination location open. You need to have things in Spanish. You need to have people with boots on the ground that know how to reach out, outreach for the families, why to get the vaccine, people promoting the vaccine. And I don't think, I don't think some organizations and some states and even government to a certain extent understand that. Just having it there is not enough. And that I think is a big thing in public health is equality versus inequity. Hmm. We need to realize that we can have equality and still have very, very, very bad public health measures or public health outcomes. Why? Because it's, I always give the same example that I was given when I was a kid, um, is that let's say that you have two kids and they both want an apple from the tree, but one kid has a tree and one kid does not. So you put a tree where the kid does not have a tree. So they now both have a tree with apples and blah, blah, blah. But one kid can't climb because he has whatever he has and he can't climb the tree and the other one can't. So while it's equal, they both have the same opportunity, the same reason, the same thing there, a tree with apples. Mm-hmm. One needs a ladder in order for it to be really equitable. Right. So we should focus on how to bridge that and stop the inequities, not so much the inequalities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a concept that we see replicated in education and so many other other fields and like that increased need for a focus on equity and not just not just equality. Um, tell me a yeah. little bit more about social determinants of health. What are they and what kind of role have they played um, during the COVID-19 pandemic? So social determinants of health, I would say, are sort of the bread and butter of, of public health. They're everything that affects a patient's health that isn't their physiology. One would be one that's very, very commonly heard is access to food or access to care. So it's it's very funny because a lot of patients or a lot of doctors tell their patients with heart disease, diabetes, and all of that to, okay, you need to change your diet or you need to go run or you need to go um, to a gym. But we need to remember that if there is unequal or inequitable access to care or a lack of access to food, that person can't just go get broccoli somewhere because what if they don't have any huge store like Walmart or Safeway or any other stores that are huge chains? They just have local markets of somehow. And on top of that, let's say that they do live in a city where it's big, like Phoenix, Arizona. If they're low income, you're asking them to get broccoli. You're asking them to run to a, go to a gym or run outside. That's a lot of money for some people, especially during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you got to take in mind their environment, where they live. You're asking them to go run outside, but they live in a neighborhood that is not the safest. Then that just may be counterintuitive or counterproductive. Right. So that's that's one example, I guess, of how the social determinants of health, access to food, the environment can play a role. I mean, other things is is um, language barriers which is very common in Arizona. If you speak Spanish, but all your physicians speak English and there's no translator and all your papers are in in English, then 
lo and behold, obviously you either may not get that follow-up care, may not get that treatment or, or whatever, even access to medicine, mm -hmm. pharmacies, and all of that, that stuff, access to insurance. If people don't have insurance, especially um, low-income people, if let's say they don't have a job right now or like during the pandemic and their insurance was through an employer and while they try to get insurance on, on healthcare.gov, but let's say it's too expensive, then now you have people without insurance. How are they going to get care? Mm -hmm. So those, so the social determinants of health are everything that affects one's health. That, that is not the physiology. Now, COVID, I think COVID has really, really highlighted the impact that these social determinants of health can have. And one example I always give is, or one question actually I always get is why are minorities or what is one reason minorities like Blacks and Hispanics are getting more COVID or we're having more COVID cases in those races than whites per se. And well, that's because of the social determinants of health. I mean, who do, who do you see as your people in the groceries? Who do you see people in, in jobs that do not have paid leave? So obviously they don't have, I had to quarantine for seven days with my husband. And luckily um, we had the, the financial fallout in case for those three, four days, in case he didn't get paid or I didn't have money, but many people don't have that many. And unfortunately, whether it is what it is, minorities are more in that category. And a lot of that is because again, the social determinants of health, you can't, I mean, a lot of people too, they have kids. When you're speaking of minorities in particular, the average amount of kids in a minority is three to six in, a min in minority families, and you can't pay for childcare sometimes. So you you have to either bring your kids or keep your kids at home, and then you go home and then you give it to the kids. So you can't just send your kids somewhere else. Yeah. So I think people need to realize that the social determinants of health is really what has caused a lot of the increased cases in minority families. And I think we should really leverage on that information and realize that we need to create safety net programs for this population. If we have a crisis like this, like for example, in Texas with the crisis right now that everyone that there's four to five days with people with no power. Yeah, maybe someone can try and figure out someone that has money can go like, okay, I'll go to Arizona here. We're just having a little breeze. It's like 80 degrees. Yeah. I'll go to Arizona. I have a car and this and that. But what about other families that don't have that, that don't have that car or mm -hmm. don't have that money or can't just grab their kids and go? What do you do about those families is the question. And, and that those are the social determinants of health and what we should start focusing on in healthcare as a whole, if you ask me. Yeah, we can see how quickly something like um, this, like, I don't know if we can call it a natural disaster, but ultimately has begun to affect people's health and um, those existing inequities, whether it's um, inequities in housing and things like that, like have become a health issue as, as the cold and, and such have affected people with blackouts. What what do you think are some ways that people who are interested in public health, but are people like me who haven't studied it and don't work in public health, what are ways that we can be engaging with these topics and learning about them? I think one way people can sort of start engaging um, is, first of all, for people like when we're talking about like healthcare, 
is simply being an advocate in, in your own house. Um, and that may sound a little like, well, well, yeah, of course I'm gonna be an advocate, but how's that gonna get me like public health knowledge? It does because if you speak out on your health and you ask the questions that you want, then you'll figure they'll figure out what social determinants of health are affecting you. Now we have to also take in mind that the US doesn't have the, the best healthcare system in the planet. So obviously we have a lack of PCPs, of family physicians, and they're saturated. They have more patients than they should have in one day because of just the lack of doctors. So we have to try and advocate for our own health and, and be that helping hand for our doctor so we can try and relay to our doctors our social determinants of health. Like if you have, let's say your doctor tells you, okay, you're gonna have a surgery, this is a post-op and this is what you need to buy. If you don't know what that is, or you don't know where to get it, or you don't have access to, to a pharmacy that can give you that, let them know, then they can figure it out. And if not, they can ask somebody else. I think is one way I would say it. And I think a lot of it too is, is simply um, being aware of, of everyone's surrounding, being aware of what's going on. Um, in this case, for example, COVID, the vaccine, what is going on? Who's being affected? Who's not being affected? Just sort of being aware so one can sort of start thinking, right? Like, okay, well, why are Blacks and Hispanics being more affected by COVID-19 than whites? Why are low-income people and minorities getting the vaccine less than whites? I think being aware of one's surrounding is very important. So you can sort of get those questions going in regards to, to public health. And the other thing is following science. And while that may sound a little um, redundant and to some people will like, duh, I think we've realized that, that that's not the case. We've realized that there, there is um, with social media, with political party and everything, it's, it's affected obviously, what do we listen to? And I would say, listen to the science, listen to the scientists and listen to the leaders in public health. For example, if you ask me, who should I listen to? for public health for COVID, I'd say listen to the CDC and listen to your county, what they say, but especially the CDC, and they will give you the recommendations on what to do if you've been exposed. If you wanna get tested, look at your county website. What are they doing? Ask questions, call, out, do outreach for yourself. But most importantly, like mentioned, I would say stick to the science and listen to the scientists because I assure you they will use data, which is what we all love in public health. We love data and they will tell you exactly how it should be. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely just value in being aware, even if, you know, there's nothing I can do to, I mean, there are things I can do, but my time is limited. But being aware, just being aware and having that right information is really powerful because then when you're in conversations with people and when you do have a chance to act, you're, you're prepared to do so. Um, any last thoughts on public health today? Um, I would say just piggybacking sort of on your thought is, is that I agree with that. And I think a lot of the reason to be aware is because of implicit bias. So that's simply the bias that one has that one does not realize one has because they've lived in that surrounding forever. Um, so for example, a lot of people don't realize if when they come in and they see me, for example, actually it's happened to me too many times to count. If they see me walking at Walmart and I'm going to go and ask somebody, they think I don't know English. Mm. So, or vice versa. They think I don't know Spanish because if I talk Spanish, it sounds like I don't know English and vice versa. 
So I think just being aware of sort of those things, like if that happens to you, let's say that you do cross with someone that does know, um, that you thought did not know English, but does know it very well, maybe sort of think like, okay, I need to check myself and make sure that, that I don't judge people without knowing it, which right. is the implicit bias. So sort of is what I would sort of piggyback on, on that. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. Okay, thanks so much, Maria. This has been a really interesting conversation and I'm excited to have you back on the podcast soon. Well, thank you so much. It was great being here and sharing my experience. Definitely had a good time. And that is the end of the Novel Hand podcast for today. Check back on Wednesday for an episode of Hand.